The text of the sermon today, uh, given my chat, is on Mark 5, chapter 5, verse uh, 1 through 20, and this is on page 840 in the um, Bibles in the chairs, if you don't have your copy with you. <clears throat> so Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. There came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. They came to the other side, uh, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down to the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting back into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but it said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he, had, he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Good morning. You know, I wonder what your initial reaction is to this story about Jesus. We've just, this is the third of, of some three pretty fantastic and amazing and uh, even quite unbelievable events that we've looked at. Two weeks ago, we saw that Jesus spoke a word and a storm was calm. Last week was Easter. And of course, we looked at the resurrection. And now this week, there's this amazing story about a man that was possessed by so many demons that when they came out, there was this, I don't know, mass pig suicide. I mean, it's pretty unbelievable. And we live in a day that, that questions everything, that is skeptical of everything. We rely upon science and reason for everything. And so when we look at these, I wonder what your response is. Is it, is it that you doubt? Is it that you kind of question, that you kind of look at this as some sort of myth or fable or just... Just try not to deal with it at all. It makes sense, uh, given where we are in this day and age, but 
But yet, I don't know, there's something more to it. Yes, we're an age that's defined by skepticism, but also subjectivity. And we've, we've got this weird sort of dichotomy between holding to those things that are tangible, those things that are empirical, and then this desire for this recognition, if you will, of things that are beyond that. And I find it ironic that this society that puts so much emphasis on science and reason and skepticism on one hand, on the other hand, the hold to subjectivity or personal experience or even superstition. Think I'm wrong? Think about how much money we spend every year in the media on things supernatural, right? Think about the number of horror movies that come out each year, right? Or how many shows you have dedicated to the paranormal or like this ghost hunting, right? I mean, think about all the, the New Age spiritualism books that come out where people are they're in the news, they're, they're writing their new book about this experience that they've had, you know, something that's, that's really kind of trippy and profound and, and, and unexplainable uh, to common man. Think about the fascination that people have with zombies. I mean, come on. It's just crazy. And so we, we, we've got this society that at one hand, you hold on to science and reason, but at the other hand, there's clearly things that we can't explain and things that we actually kind of like about that which is unexplainable. And we're happy to indulge in those things as long as it has no bearing upon my life. You know, um, we have... I think that deep down we have this plaguing sense, this realization that there is something more that can be explained with reason and science. We have minds. We have wills. We have emotions. We can't explain that with science. That's, that's more than electrical impulses across the synapses of my brain. That's more than me being a, a biological machine. That's more than me uh, just having some sort of chemical reaction inside my body. We know that we're more than animals. We know that we're more than just a tree. And so we cling to the spiritual as long as it has no bearing upon my life. I want to argue with you that we, have, we, we only use science and reason to doubt the supernatural occurrences of the Bible. We have no problem when they happen in other places. And the reason why we have no problem when they happen in other places is because, again, we, we realize that, that there is something more that we can't explain. We just don't like it having a bearing upon my life. And so if it has an ethical demand, if it has a moral demand, if it's something more than it's just philosophical, I'm going to throw it out the window. You know, if we believe in zombies, that doesn't really have an ethical implication for my life. In fact, it gives me license to would you say bust a cap in Mac Brown if he was a zombie? Yeah, yeah. You know, so if he's a zombie, we have license to do that, right? You know, uh, but, but here's the thing, seriously. But if Jesus calmed the storm, if Jesus rose from the grave, if Jesus has authority over demons, then we're obligated to that. We have to be changed by that. And we don't like it. So we'll, we'll just try to ignore or doubt those things. We'll question them. We'll just kind of read over briefly and not really deal with the weight of what is happening here and the implications that it has on my life.
man naturally responds negatively to Jesus because, let's face it, Jesus is unexpected and Jesus is unwanted. Jesus comes and He does things differently than we would expect Him to or that we would want Him to. And when it has a bearing upon my life, when it obligates me to do something, then I just say, forget it. I don't want it. And we see that here in this text. He is not welcome. He is rejected. But Jesus' ways are not our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts. So when we're dealing with this unexpectedness of Jesus, we, we first we need to see in verse 1 that Jesus is heading in an unexpected direction. And this story picks up immediately following that terrible storm that Jesus had just calmed. Remember back in chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, Jesus had been teaching all day along the Sea of Galilee near the city of Capernaum in Jewish territory. He was in the homeland. But after this long day of teaching and healing and casting out demons, he he tells his disciples to go ahead and get in the boat, and they head across to this raging sea to the other side that used to be Jewish land, but is no longer. This is enemy territory. Now, it seems innocent enough, but again, if you understand national boundaries, you know that you quickly realize that this used to be Jewish land, but it's not anymore. And when something used to be yours and it's not anymore, you don't like that, right? You get angry about that. So there was tension, there was hostility there. This was the country of the Gerasenes. This is enemy territory. This is hostile land. Gentiles live there. Almost exclusively Gentiles live there. And not just Gentiles, but unclean Gentiles. Defiled Gentiles. Jesus is there. He's telling his followers to get in the boats, to travel, travel across this lake that can just explode, can erupt in moments without notice, to go across there, putting their lives at risk, to head in the opposite direction of God's people, God's chosen Israel, to head into enemy land, into to hostile territory, to be uh, immersed in unclean Gentile culture. Jesus did this knowing that the storm would come. Challenging the faith of His followers. They feared and they pleaded for, his, for their lives as the wind and the waves beat down upon their boats and almost sunk them. They were terrified that Jesus would let them die as they were on their way in the middle of the night to enemy territory. That is until Jesus stood up and He spoke three words and everything was calm. And then, we learned last week, two weeks ago that that's when they really became afraid. It's one thing to have that storm raging outside your boat, and it's another thing to have God inside your boat. And they knew that something was going on. So here they were, middle of the night, heading into enemy territory. This man with these amazing supernatural abilities just spoke, calmed the storm, and they're heading into enemy land. Could you even imagine what was going on? I would, like them, be asking, who on earth is this? There's no health and wealth and prosperity here, folks. The reality is this seems like a suicide mission. 
He's heading in the opposite direction of God's holy and chosen people to an unclean land that is filled with unclean people. As soon as he steps out of the boat, he's met with an, by an unclean man who lived among unclean tombs that had an unclean spirit, some psychotic, naked madman who is going to go and like get all his, his unclean Gentile buddies together and kill them, right? I mean, it's just, you, this is what they're going into. This is a big deal. So it's not surprising that the disciples would wonder what's going on. But what I love about this passage, what I love about this verse, is that you see the missionary heart of Jesus. You see it here. I mean, yes, he came to fulfill Old Testament law. Yes, he came first to the Jews, to the Old Testament people of God. But we see him leaving that crowd of Jews to do the hard thing charging the very gates of hell to reach out to the Gentiles. At this point, more than likely, Jesus would have already passed through Samaria. So he would have already had his, his encounter with the woman at the well. These were the Samarian, uh, Samaritans. They, they were hated by the Jews. They were, they were half Gentile. They were traitors. You know, and he already had this experience. And if you've read John chapter 4, you know what happened. That she, she believed in Jesus. She, she told the town. A lot of people came. So this is more than likely Jesus' second big Gentile mission. Alright? I'm not talking about those instances where Gentiles just happened to be there. Or the fact that all these Gentiles came and they were among that polyplethora, that huge crowd that came to see Jesus and all those miracles that came from as far as 120 miles away. These were people that Jesus initially and intentionally set out to go seek after. Jesus wasn't concerned about the risk. He wasn't concerned about the potential defilement. He was going out to them. He was reaching out to them. And this is important. Because in this, you recognize that your Savior does not call you to do something that He Himself did not do. He did it first. And so as He calls you to do the hard things, as He calls you to cross the storming sea, as He calls you to go into hostile enemy territory, know that Jesus did it first. He calls us to be missionaries because He, too, is a missionary. Jesus' mission uh, is unexpected. But second, in verses 2 through 7, it tells us that Jesus was met with an unexpected greeting. Let's pick up in the passage. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met Him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles into pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. The Lord of the wind and the waves steps out of the boat. He wasn't met with fanfare and accolade as he deserved. 
Instead, he was attacked by a violent, demon-possessed streak who charged down the hill to do battle with him. This man has an unclean spirit, or should we say, a legion of unclean spirits. That was what he called himself. And we know that from verse 13, that there were enough demons to possess 2,000 pigs and to destroy them in the sea. Rejected by the people and banished from the community, this man makes his, his home among unclean tombs. He lives among the dead. His, his home is a graveyard, but he could no longer live among the living. He didn't have a choice He was so violent and so volatile that people tried numerous times to restrain him. They tried, but they failed. They bound him with chains. He broke them apart. They shackled him, but yet he ripped them. This man knew no pain. He was beyond it. He wrenched the chains. He broke the shackles to pieces. He he could not be stopped. Matthew adds that he was so fierce that the people no longer went that way. They avoided that area altogether. And we see that night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he would scream and wail and cry out of madness and out of desperation. He would gash himself. He would bruise himself. He would cut himself with stones. This man was so violent that he was violent even to himself. And we learn from verse 15 that he was naked. Naked is, nakedness in the Bible it refers to sexual perversion. It's immoral for one to uncover their nakedness before another, but yet this man had run around for years without any clothes on. He was a pervert. So this man's an animal. I mean, really, he's, he's worse than an animal. He's subhuman. He's a sexually deviant sociopath who is extremely violent with superhuman strength and a mind that is intent on evil. Luke, said, Luke adds to this account that he used to be guarded night and day. But not any longer. He was so dangerous that they couldn't even keep him guarded. So they let him run free. This guy's a monster. He's the worst of the worst. Have you ever heard of such a wretched soul? I mean, honestly, this guy puts Charles, this guy puts Charles Manson and Jeffrey Dahmer to shame. I mean, think about it. Think about all that this man must have done. All the violence. All the evil. Think about what a sad state he was in. This man is experiencing hell on earth. As I thought about that, man, it just it grieved me to think about this man was such a slave to the demonic that all he could do was cry and wail like a madman and gash himself with stones. Have you ever heard of such a hopeless case? Mark says that when Jesus, he, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran down to him. He wasn't running down to be saved. He wasn't running down to be delivered from this demon possession. He came rushing down to attack, to destroy, to do battle. He's there to defend Satan's territory. Jesus had crossed over into enemy lines. And he's there to get him. Jesus is now toe-to-toe with a legion of demons. And if you, you understand this term legion, it refers to a group of 6,000 soldiers. Right? Numbers really irrelevant here, but, but Jesus is basically toe-to-toe with a battalion of Satan's army. 
And we've seen this in that, that, that he's, he's intent to destroy. We, we've seen it in his violence towards others, in his violence to himself, and we'll see it in his violence towards the pigs. Right? That's what he's there to do. To torment and destroy. And like we saw before in chapters 1 and 3, the demons, like always, they immediately recognize Jesus. They know who he is. They call him by name. They identify him by title. And they do this because they've seen Jesus before. They've recognized Jesus before they had fallen. Demons used to be angels that dwelled with God in heaven. They saw Jesus in His eternal glory before they rebelled against God and fell from heaven. And so as Jesus comes before, they recognize Him and they call out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus, Son of the Most High God, have you come to torment us? Have you come to punish us? This is amazing. Remember, remember why Mark's writing? Do you remember? He's telling who Jesus is, why he came, and what it means to follow him, right? Here we see the demons recognizing who Jesus is. And in part, they understand why he came. That he came to gain victory, to defeat Satan in his dominion, in, in, in all his dominion. But they can't follow him. They're beyond hope. There's no repentance for demons. But not for this man. And not for you and me. It's too late for the demons to have a chance to respond to the person and work of Jesus, but it's not for us. And knowing that their time was up, we see in verses 8 through 13 that this unexpected greeting party, third, made an unexpected request. They're there and they are groveling at the feet of Jesus. They recognize him, and though they went immediately to do battle with him, they fell on their face in hopelessness and utter despair. They knew that they were going to be defeated. And so they say in, in, chapter, in verse 8 through 13, uh, For he was saying to them, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now the herd of pigs was, was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. And so he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and they entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. What we see here is when the Son of God tells you to do something, you're going to do it. There's not an option here. These demons, calling themselves legion, fell before Jesus and begged Him not to torment them. Which I, I find very, very ironic the tormentors afraid to be tormented. But here they were, recognizing the authority of Jesus, and they had no choice but to submit. Mark's whole point is here is that they recognize who Jesus is. They recognize His authority. They recognize that He is the Son of God. They fully realize that. They, they, and they can do nothing about it. They're powerless to do anything about it. Just as their master Satan was defeated in Jesus' temptation in chapter 1 by him quoting the word of God, this legion of demons was defeated by a single word of his power. 
You know, some people think that Jesus died on the cross to defeat Satan and his minions. I don't think so. I think they were defeated in Jesus' temptation. I think they're defeated just by the sheer fact that he is the Son of God. They're subject to his rule. And you see that every time he encounters a demon. Immediately they shriek out, they cry, they ask not to be tormented, and he deals with them with one word. Jesus didn't just simply come and die on the cross to defeat the power of sin, or, or defeat the power of Satan. He came to defeat sin and death. That's why he came. That's why he died on the cross. Jesus does not need to die on the cross to defeat Satan. It's already done. It's done based upon who he is, his very nature, his very purpose. And here we see a legion of demons falling at his feet. So friends, keep that in mind as you think about temptation and stuff. Often we want to say, you know, this is Satan. No, your biggest enemy is sin. Your biggest enemy is yourself. Satan can deceive, but Satan is completely bound. Alright? Jesus has the power over Satan. He is the Son of God. And they cannot stand against Him because He is who they, they say He is. The Son of the Most High God. Does this not catch you? Does this not catch you? I just amaze you that... that you know, I've said this before. Jesus is confirmed in who he really is by two different people in Scripture. Right? Well, three. Okay? The first one, God at his baptism. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then multiple times by demons. Both heaven and hell attest to the very person of Christ. And then the last time, which is meant to be the climax after Jesus died on the cross, was the Roman centurion said, truly this man is the Son of God. These demons, they know that they are left with no other option. And so they make this strange request to enter into these pigs. Now, I'm not going to, I don't know why they wanted to go into the pigs. I mean, we know from the text that they didn't want to leave the country, but that seems weird. Maybe it was because, okay, they knew that Jesus was going to come and that they were going to suffer eternal torment. And so as a survival strategy, they said, hey, you know what? We've got, we've got two options here. We've got eternal damnation or we have pigs. I'm going to choose pigs. This is just pure survival, right? That's one option. The other one is this. The demon's sole purpose in that land for who knows how long has been to torment, to destroy to cause pain and hardship and affliction. And this is just one last opportunity before they have to go to basically run up and kick your dog and slam your door behind him. You know, like just that one last little hurrah, get it out there, doing, you know, showing their angst, showing their frustration, showing who they really are, that they are intent on destroying and tormenting. But the thing that's even more surprising to me is that Jesus actually lets them. I mean, think about this. In allowing these demons who are beyond hope, beyond the opportunity for repentance, enter into these pigs, Jesus knows that this is going to bring hardship on these people. It has to. Even if these pigs didn't go crazy and run down the hill and drown in the sea, who wants 2,000 mad pigs? Seriously. I mean, what good? I mean, they couldn't handle one sadistic, 
socio, you know, sociopathic, you know, sexually deviant, crazy dude, how are they going to handle 2,000 mad swine? Seriously. These things are going to be chasing around eating them. I mean, this is nuts. So the, the, Jesus knows that this is going to create hardship. Maybe, maybe this is meant to show how maddening the demonic really is. You know, the 2000, they enter these 2,000 pigs and these pigs just go crazy and they, they run down this hill and drown. Or maybe it's meant to show how unclean they are because pigs in that day were considered unclean animals. Maybe both, but even more so. Um, the amazing thing is this is probably the people's livelihood in that region. 2,000 pigs, that's a lot of pigs for any one man to have. More than likely... These pigs belong to the people of the city and the people of the country, right? They work together, and this was their main source of income. And in this, this herd of pigs running down and dying, I mean, boom, all of a sudden their economy is in shambles. Yet Jesus permits it. Jesus allows it to happen. God allows hard things to happen to us. And He does it for our good so that we might not rely upon ourselves or on our own prophets or, in this case, on our own pigs, but in the One who gives life and breath and everything. Unfortunately, this unexpected request was met forth with an unexpected response. Verses 14 through 17 then tell us that the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what, what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the, demon, the, the, the demon-possessed man, the one who had, been, had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had been with it, who had seen it, they described it to them, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. In one instant, the economy of the city and those surrounding in the countryside fell into immediate ruin as these pigs drowned. Either that, or they were getting ready to have the biggest and baddest bacon fest ever, which I know that Jim is hoping for that. Um, but... The herdsmen, seeing all that had just happened, ran and they told the people throughout the area. Not just in the city, but also in the country. And these people came out. We don't know how many, but a lot. It was a crowd. They saw the pigs bobbing there in the water. They saw this guy who, who was so violent, who was so perverse, now sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, no doubt learning at Jesus' feet. And then they saw Jesus the Son of the Most High God. And they repented, right? They all believed in Jesus. Happily ever after, right? No. They rejected Him. Since they were afraid. They wanted Him to leave. They didn't fall at His feet or, or ask Him to stay and teach them. They were afraid and they began to beg Jesus to leave. And again, this is amazing because even here we see the demons are more aware than the people. The demons saw they were afraid, but they didn't dare ask Jesus to leave. They knew that their time was up. But here the crowd, they were afraid. They saw Jesus. They didn't fall at their feet and they asked Him to leave. 
You know, we often mistakenly think that if only I could see a miracle, my faith would be so much greater. If I was here, if I was one of these herdsmen, or if I was one of these townsfolks that, you know, my pig Sue, you know, she, she ran down the hill too and, and was drowned, that, you know, and I saw this guy that had, had, had you know, chased around my sister and, and hit me with a rock or something, that, man, if I saw all this happen, I, I would totally believe. I, I, I couldn't deny that. I mean, I, I've seen how crazy this guy is. I, I, I saw these pigs. Surely I would believe. But as we see throughout the Bible, this is never the case. People naturally reject the miraculous. They initially reject the supernatural. There are thousands of examples in Scripture where you see this. I mean, think about the people of Israel during the Exodus, right? They were there as slaves who had been freed because Jesus sent a bunch of plagues on the Egyptians. They got to steal all their stuff and take it with them as they crossed through the sea. And God makes the water fall down on the, 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 these, these chariots, right? And they're there and they're being led by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And they're like, man, this is great. Jesus is, or, or God has given us water from a rock and manna is showing up every day for us to eat. I mean, how is it possible that there's a million, over a million of us and we're surviving in the desert? Lord knows how. I mean, this is belief, right? I'm trusting in this. No, they died in the wilderness because of their unbelief and because of their complaining and because of their rebellion against God. But think about that polyplethora, that huge crowd that had been following Jesus and had seen all these miracles and heard Jesus teach over and over and over again. How many of them believed that He was the Son of God? In a few weeks, we're going to look at the feeding of 5,000. 5,000 men. Stomachs filled because Jesus provides them a fish and bread dinner, right? Did they believe? Did they become his disciples? No. Jesus died alone. No. <clears throat> Seeing is not believing. Seeing miracles, it's not, you, you, inevitably you're going to put your faith in that one event, that one miracle, and you're always looking for the next. When reality, faith comes down to who Jesus is. Is he who he says he is? Is he who he proves himself to be? That's where faith comes from. That's what we have to deal with. No, we, here we see the depravity of man expressed in their response. They weren't convinced by these miracles. They desired to have Jesus leave. The reality is they were more comfortable with sin and with the demonic than they were with Jesus. They were more afraid of him than they were of sin and Satan himself. Let that grip you guys. We are a fickle, unbelieving, depraved people who would gladly trade the Son of God for swine. We would gladly trade civility for sexual perversion, for peace, for violence. Jesus for Satan and all his cohorts. We are far more comfortable with the presence of evil than we are the presence of holiness. Apart from the grace of God to deliver us from this depravity, just as Jesus did this man from this legion of demons, we would do the same thing. We would reject it. We would gladly choose our sin. 
May God deliver us from our depravity. This is one of those proofs that the Bible is true. That this isn't a myth, a fable, some sort of fantasy. In a fantasy, the guy always gets the girl. The hero always wins. But not here. Here the hero is asked to leave. They didn't see this and everybody came to know Jesus and then they lifted him up on their shoulders and prayed him through town saying, surely this man is the Son of God. No, this is proof that I mean, this, this stuff is not made up. Because there's only one converted and the rest were afraid for their lives. Now they said, get in the boat and leave. But fortunately for us, it's not how this historical account of Jesus ends either. This unexpected response leads fifth to Jesus calling an unexpected missionary. The crowd, they begged Jesus to leave. And verses 18 through 20 says that as Jesus was getting into the boat, this man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with Jesus. And he did not permit him, but he said to him, go, go home, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. It says the man went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And Jesus, having having been asked to leave, no sooner than he got there, he climbs back in the boat, getting ready to head back over to the Jews again. And this man, who Jesus had just delivered from this legion of demons, whether it was 2,000 or 6,000, it doesn't matter, because if 2,000 can enter one man, then 3,000, then three can enter a pig, you know, so who cares? But this legion of demons was in this man. Jesus saved him. He had redeemed him. He loved him. He, and he knew that he owed Jesus his life. And all he does is plead, can I just be with you? I just want to be with you. I want to follow you. I want to be where you are. I recognize how much I need you that I was a slave and you have set me free. That's all that I want. Let me go. Let me go with you. And Jesus says, no. Jesus refused. He didn't permit him to come. All the man wanted to do was to be with Jesus. And he said, no. And it seems so backwards to us. It's like, how could you do this, Jesus? This man is begging you. And you're telling him no. Though Jesus' response is clearly unexpected, there are two reasons why Jesus said no. The first one is that uh, Jesus was sent to fulfill all God's promises. God's promises that surrounded the people of Israel. And so he had to be faithful to those promises in ways that could be received and understood and believed. And so you know, he, he knew that having a Gentile tagging along with him would be a problem. And so he said, no, I already have 12 disciples, 12 Jewish disciples. They are the new Israel. You are a Gentile. Your time is not yet. It will be, but it's not yet. But the second reason, and, and more persuasive, more, more amazing, 
Jesus, uh, the response of the crowd shows us, their unbelief shows us that Jesus crossed that stormy sea, put his life at risk, put his disciples' lives at risk, to go across into defiled, hostile, enemy territory to save this man. This one man. And he calls this man to be a missionary to the Gentiles. This man is the first appointed missionary by Jesus. He sent this man out before he sends out the twelve. He doesn't do that for another chapter. Before Jesus ever sends out his new Israel to proclaim Jesus, he sends out this man. This man had no experience, no education, no more training than the mo- from the moment that the demons drowned those pigs in the sea and Jesus stepped into that boat. Moments of training. And that was it. And Jesus calls him. This man had a horrible past. You don't get more wretched than this man. There is nothing worse than this man. And Jesus calls him. He says, I don't care about your past. He's the, and he's a Gentile. He's not God's promised people, right? The first one that Jesus told, go and tell what the Lord has done. Jesus doesn't send out the twelve again, you know, till, till chapter six. And so far, he has told everyone whom he has healed, who he has delivered, to tell no one. But this man, he says, go and tell. Tell of the work and the mercy of the Lord. And here we see another claim to Jesus' deity. Because the Lord is God. But yet Jesus was the one who saved this man and showed him mercy. Remember he says, tell what the Lord has done. And then the man goes out and he tells what Jesus has done. This is a claim. This is, this is the Lord. He's testifying to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. That the Lord has commissioned him to go and tell. So you didn't grow up in church? Good. You have no seminary training? That's great. You know, uh, you, you, you don't have any ministry experience? That's not a problem. No training? No worries. Well, you, you have this horrible past? This unbelievably wretched past? Well, glory be to God. You're new in Christ. You have only followed Jesus for a few minutes? Well, who else can take credit for that besides God? Glory to Him. Now go and tell. Tell them of the mighty work of the Lord. Tell them of His mercy. Tell them. Tell them. Guys, this is unbelievable. I just... Oh, I just... The fact that this man, Jesus calls him out of slavery and sends him out like that. The first missionary. Guys, if you do not have hope, if you do not believe, if you think that, man, I I just have to get seminary training before I can go out and be a minister. You know, I've got to have this title. I've got to have this desk. I have to work in this building and receive this paycheck in order for me to be a missionary. It is hogwash. God has called us to be missionaries. And it doesn't matter because He can work it out. Now, I'm not saying that that we shouldn't go to seminary ever. I'm not saying that we shouldn't ever get 
ministry experience. But we're not bound by that. That is not what makes us. What makes us is the call of Christ upon our lives to go and tell what the Lord has done. And if that has happened in your lives, that's all that matters. Your life is your best testimony to the truthfulness of the gospel. It's the only testimony to the truthfulness of the gospel to an unbelieving world who doubts the miraculous, who doubts the very word of God. The Spirit uses it. Proclamation, man, it's a message. It's a word spoken through frail, insignificant, weak, miserable, wretched sinners like you and me. And we see that this man does. There's your evidence that he's a believer. He does it. Verse 20 says that he went away and he began to proclaim, not just among his friends, but throughout the region of the Decapolis. The region surrounding these ten large cities that are east of the Jordan. These, these Gentile cities. And it, was, and it says that everyone marveled at his testimony. So that... By the time you get to chapter 7, verses 31 through 37, you see that Jesus comes again to the region of the Decapolis, and this time, people aren't afraid of Him and ask Him to leave. Instead, they bring a deaf man to Him, and they beg Him to heal the man. I believe this is a direct result of this man's ministry, of this man's faithfulness. This man who was formerly possessed by a legion of demons goes and he tells what the Lord has done for him. Your past, your training, your education, your experience, they mean nothing compared to the authoritative call of Christ. And this man was faithful to it. And that's all that matters, folks. If you haven't figured it out by now, God, Jesus works in unexpected ways. Here, we have seen him charge the front line of Satan's dominion, victoriously defeat a legion of demons with the single word, convert only one, send that man out as a missionary, the most unlikely man imaginable, into hostile enemy territory, and it bears fruit. It bears fruit. The kingdom has advanced. This is miraculous. This is supernatural. This is unbelievable. And it is because it's true. Jesus takes those that think they're on the inside and He turns them out. But yet, He takes those on the outside and He brings them in. And you see this happen throughout Mark over and over and over and over again. Those, think, those guys that think they're safe, they think they've got it together all the time. They're, they're sent out. They're turned away. They don't get it. But those that are on the outside, that recognize that they are enslaved wretches, the sinful, the miserable, the defiled, the depraved, these He brings in. Just like this defiled, demon-possessed Gentile. Guys, that's hope. And I hope you catch that. Let's pray together.
Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder that it's not the gifted and the expected and the talented, the professionals that you use, but you use the least likely, the weak, those that know who they are apart from Christ. God, I pray that that you would honestly strike us with a profound sense of unworthiness to have heard and by your grace received this gospel message. God, I pray that if there are those here in this room that have not placed their faith and trust in in this miracle-working, amazing, life-changing, life-giving Christ, that they would do so. God, open our eyes to the wretchedness of our sin, to the reality that we gladly choose sin and Satan and swine over Christ. And may we fall on our knees in humble repentance and fully acknowledge Him for who He is, the Son of God. Pray for those who are here that are believers that have just become apathetic and kind of cold and callous towards this message, that we're more caught up in our safety and our financial well-being and our comfort than we are willing to take risks, to do the hard things, to, to obey the call of Christ that we would consider the call that you've placed on our lives. Because if we are disciples of Christ, if we bear the name of Christian, then we are to bear the name of Christ to those who have not heard. To be a disciple is to be a disciple maker. So God, I pray that you would change our hearts. Make us like this man. Free us from our slavery to sin and to death. And to help us to run hard after Christ. To be with him. It's more important than anything else. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.